listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Happy Fourth of July. It's an American holiday. You've heard of it. Um, the gospel reading that, that Zach just read for us kind of falls into two parts, doesn't it? There's this first section about Jesus being rejected when he goes to Nazareth, and then this next section about him kind of sending out the 12. Jesus' visit to Nazareth starts off, I think, okay. So he's there, and they invite him to speak. So that, that sounds good, right? He's going to get to speak in his synagogue uh, where he grew up. So if we're following along the Gospel of Mark, his family had traveled from Nazareth over to Capernaum where he lived because they were worried about him. He was behaving kind of strangely. They'd heard these stories, and they're like, hey, you need to come home with us. Like, maybe you've, you know, you're working too hard. Like, they, they, they treat him as though he had kind of lost his mind. And he's like, and they're like, hey, your family's out here, and they want to talk to you. And he's like, who is my family except the one who does the will of the Father? Like, ooh, that's kind of harsh. But now he's with his disciples, and they're kind of tracing that trail. They're moving from Capernaum back to Nazareth. And when they get there, he's in his hometown, the place where he grew up. And the, those who are hearing him speak, they've invited him to speak, but those who are hearing him to speak, their tone turns very quickly from amazement to suspicion, they're like, isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Like, where did he get this wisdom from? And how is he doing these deeds of power? Like, we know this guy. And isn't this the son of Mary? And the brother of Santiago and Jose and Simone? Or however you say those names. Those are kind of the, the central Florida pronunciations. So what do we make of those kind of statements? Um, it's, it's hard, I think, to answer those questions and to, to, because it's almost impossible to hear the tone of a question that's been written. Traditionally, it's been understood, or, or it's often been understood, that these questions had a really sharp point on them. Um, Celsus, an early critic of Christianity, said, how can anybody possibly believe in this stuff? Do you not realize that they worship a construction worker? Like, that was his assessment. Like, no one in their right mind would worship a construction worker. Like, they're just those guys that kind of work out on the road, you know? Somebody that holds the sign, you know, you know, slow down or stop, or somebody's running that kind of heavy machinery on the road, you know, that kind of work. So that was a critique that he offered. Others have said that the fact that they refer to Jesus as the son of Mary was attended as a very kind of harsh cultural slur because it was typical in the Jewish setting to refer to a man as being the son of his father. So to say that he's the son of his mother suggests perhaps that we don't know who his father is, right? So to call Jesus the son of Mary, some would say, would be the verbal equivalent of calling him a bastard. But I think those, those readings might be unnecessarily harsh, like, I'm not so sure that's what the Gospel of Mark is telling us about the story. 
For example, the word there that's used for carpenter, I mean, it could be translated construction worker, but it would be somebody who worked with a kind of soft material. So they could have been, they could have worked with wood, they could have worked with stone, they could have been a mason, but they could have been somebody who fixed things, both built things and fixed things. And someone who did that in a small village would have been someone that everyone knew, someone that you called on. Like, this is the guy who can fix stuff, right? And the fact that Jesus is referred to by that term might simply suggest that his father is no longer around. The Gospel of Mark never tells us the story of Jesus' nativity. Like if all we have is Mark's Gospel, we don't know that there was some kind of discrepancy about Mary's pregnancy and that they almost went through a divorce over that event. Like Mark just starts off with John the Baptist preaching. And so the fact that Jesus is referred to as the carpenter, not the son of a carpenter, and the fact that they refer to him as the son of Mary may simply mean that they're very, very familiar with him, that they know who this guy is. They know his mom. They know his brothers. They know his sisters. They know what he does, and what he does is not, you know, teach in the synagogue and perform miracles. What he does is build houses and fix things that need to be repaired, right? So if your table or your stool or something is broken, you can take it to him and he'll fix it. So this is not the guy who should be doing these types of things. I think that's probably a little better way to read it, actually. I don't know that Mark kind of carries within his storytelling quite the level of suspicion. Um, certainly in church history, the way the text has been received, right, to be referred in church history as the son of Mary, she's kind of like the blessed mother, right? So the Orthodox tradition, the Catholic tradition, e even in Islam, right, in the Koran, it refers to Jesus as the son of Mary in kind of a respectful way. Like, you know, the son of this kind of saintly character. So I don't want to make too much of that. What is interesting is when Jesus does start to talk, he speaks pretty quickly. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. <laughs> and when Jesus does that, he's identifying himself with the Hebrew prophets. Now, we will find out later in this story that Jesus is more than a prophet, but he certainly isn't less than one. And that idea that prophets are not, with, are not without honor, right? Prophets are people who are honored, except in their own hometown. Because in their own hometown, people say, wait a minute, I know this guy. You know, this guy's a carpenter. I know his mom. I know his brothers. I know his sisters. You know, he's, he's nothing special, you know? Like, I would call him if, you know, you know, something broke at the house, one of the most interesting parts of this passage, though, for me, comes in verse 5. So Jesus has had this conflict with these people, right? And then it says this in verse 5. It says, He could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. So he could do no deed of power except for healing sick people? <laughs> healing a few sick people, to me that sounds like a deed of power. So I don't know if the story's gotten, like the order of the story's a little off. Like maybe he did that deed of power and then he taught. And they're like, who do you think you are? Right? Certainly he didn't do this deed of power after they said, we don't really believe you. Anyway, to me, I think that, that just strikes me as being kind of funny. Sounds like he was able to do a few things. 
But Jesus' response was not to get excited about healing those folks. He seems to be more excited, if that's the right word, surprised, amazed at their unbelief. Now, faith and belief do get connected in Mark's gospel. That is, we see people who have faith, and because of their faith, they are healed. So the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus says, because of your faith, you're healed, right? It wasn't Jesus' faith. It wasn't somebody else's faith. It was because of her faith that she was healed. Earlier in Mark's gospel, they had these uh, four friends of a guy who was paralyzed tried to get him to Jesus, and they couldn't get in because the, the room was too crowded. So they went on the roof, and they kind of dug a hole in the roof, and they let their, their paralyzed friend down through the roof. And Jesus looked at him and says, I forgive you. Which is interesting, right? That's not the first thing we'd expect him to say. We might expect him to say something about healing, but he said, I forgive you. Of course, he's just dug a hole in the roof, right? And it said Jesus had just gotten home. So it's probably the house that Jesus is living in. And he's probably forgiven him from digging a hole in the roof. <laughs> it's not your fault. It's, it's those guys. But anyway, he ends up healing this guy because of their faith. It doesn't say this man has faith. It says that his friends have faith. And he is healed because of his friend's faith. So we see, we see uh, the woman with the issue of blood. We talked about it the other day. Tr the church tradition calls her Veronica, St. Veronica. So St. Veronica, and then later there's a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus who is also healed because of his faith. So Veronica and Bartimaeus seem to be healed because of their faith. This, this paralyzed man seems to be healed because of somebody else's faith. But then there's some people who get healed that faith is never even mentioned in the story. Uh, Jesus meets this, this man who's been kind of demonized. He's being oppressed by these demons. It's in Gerasene, and sometimes we refer to the guy as the Gerasene demoniac. Well, Jesus delivers him. He's, he's delivered. He's, he's healed. And there's no reference to faith in the story whatsoever. It just seems to be Jesus' authority to do so, that Jesus just kind of does those things. But here in this story, Jesus is amazed at their unbelief and there seems to be this reference that he could do no, he could do no more, except for heal a few folks. <laughs> so what this story seems to tell us is that the, the lack of faith seems to put insurmountable barriers to the miracles that happen. Now, one of the things I think that all these different stories might teach us Right where people are healed because of other people's faith or they're healed because of their own faith or they seem to be healed and there's nobody seems to have faith. And, or this one, where people seem not to be healed or there seem to be lack of powerful things because of a lack of faith. If that teaches me anything, I think it teaches me this, that there's no simple formula. There's not just you do A, B, C, and therefore God does D. Right? God's not obliged to jump through any hoops for you or for me. It's not that I have to say something a particular way, and if I say it just right, then God will do it. That, that's not faith. That's magic. Right? I have to say the magic word for magic to happen. Faith doesn't work that way. We have faith, which means trust. We have trust in God for God to do what's right. And we are called to trust in God 
whether we see or don't see. Like, blessed are those who believe and see, but blessed are also those who don't see and yet believe. And I think that's the point. It's when we don't see and we trust that our faith is really tested. Like, that's when we know we really have faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith to, to believe in what you see, right? Like if it's raining and it says, you know, the weather person had told me that it was, you know, a 50% chance of rain and I'm sitting in the rain. It doesn't take a lot of faith to think, oh, I think the weather person's right, right? That doesn't take so much faith. But if you see some dark clouds and you've been told there's 0% chance of rain, but yet you see those clouds and you know what those clouds mean. And you've also known that the weather person, if anybody is a climatologist in the room, by the way, or online, I don't mean to like slanderize your profession. <laughs> but we, we've all had this experience before, right? We've, we've read the weather or we watched it and then we've experienced it. And the two things weren't exactly the same. But this is, this is what I want you to hear from me today. Or one of the things at least about this part about the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth. In this story, the lack of faith seems to put an insurmountable barrier to miracles happening. However, we serve a God who surmounts the insurmountable barriers. The lack of faith seems to put an insurmountable barrier between the, the miracle, the power, and the need. But our God surmounts insurmountable barriers. Jesus might be amazed at their lack of belief, but he still heals some of the sick. The next part of the story, Jesus sends out his disciples. Now, in the Gospels, the disciples are never referred to as apostles. That's kind of a title that they kind of get a little later. But in this story, the verb that's used is to apostle them. Like there's different words uh, for sending. But this, this word for sending actually is the same word for apostle. It means to commission, to send with a purpose. He's sending them out, and they're going to tell the gospel. Like, I'm not exactly sure what they're telling at this point just yet, right? I mean, Jesus hadn't died and been resurrected yet. In fact, Jesus hadn't done a whole lot yet, <laughs> right? He's cast out a few demons. He's calmed the storm. He's fed the 5,000, I guess. And so I guess that's what they're telling, like, Jesus, like they've yet to get to the point where they confess that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet they're already being sent out. And this is that story. So when he sends them out, when he apostles them, the description of their provisions is minimalist, right? They don't have this. They don't have this. They don't have that. They don't have the other. And that's an exactly the same description that we get of the Hebrews in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. In Exodus 12, 11, the description of the Hebrews that are getting ready to go out into the wilderness is, is exactly what we get here in Mark. So what will become the 12 tribes, they're not quite yet the 12 tribes, but what will become the 12 tribes we see here are re-envisioned amongst the 12 disciples who will become the 12 apostles. And this really strikes me about this story because when they go into various communities, they are not judged by whether or not they believe what the apostles have to say. 
They are not judged whether or not they follow some moral code that the apostles laid down for them. They are judged, they are evaluated on whether or not they show the apostles hospitality. Isn't that interesting? Like you, you might have thought the villages would have been evaluated or judged according to whether or not they believed in their message. Or maybe whether or not they lived up to some high moral code. But neither one of those get listed in this text. What gets listed in this text, it says, if they reject you, right, you can shake the dust off your feet. That's how you shake dust off your feet, by the way. You can practice that a little bit. Stick a leg out and do it like that. All right, shaking the dust off your feet. <laughs> it says this in Mark 6, 11, If any uh, place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a t- dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Something we say at Oasis, or have said for years, and we'll, we'll continue to say it, that this is a place where we want you to belong. And we think if you belong here, then eventually you start to behave the way we behave. And if you belong here and you and you and you behave the way we behave. Eventually, you'll start to believe what we believe. But that's, that's the order that we place things in, belonging, behaving, believing. I grew up in kind of the reverse order. You had to believe a certain thing before you could become a member. And then there was, you're expected to behave a certain way. And then if you believe something and you behave something, then you could belong. But that's requiring us in a way to kind of get our life in order before we can be a part of the group. And I don't think that's the way Jesus operates. I think Jesus says, you're a part of my group. And then as a part of his group, if we stick with Jesus and we follow Jesus, we'll learn how to behave. And if we're part of Jesus' group and we know that that's not in jeopardy and we learn to behave a certain way, it will lead us down a road of understanding what all that means, what all that belonging and what all that behaving is about. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for belief. I mean, I'm a theologian by training, right? But that is always, a, that's always secondary. It's a reflection on our actual experience with God, which is that we belong to God. And so we behave there a certain way. Shaking the dust off their feet is a culturally coded statement. So I can say, I'm shaking the dust off my feet, and you would think, uh, you're kind of weird, <laughs> Right? Because that's not something we do. But to, shake, to have the disciples shake the dust off their feet as a form of judgment against the villages that they had visited, the only reason they could have had dust on their feet is if the villages they visited had not washed their feet. And the washing of their feet would have been a natural kind of cultural uh, form of hospitality. Like had they been welcomed... Had they been received, their feet would have been washed. So we know that they hadn't been received because their feet are still dusty. And they're kind of dusting off their own feet saying, I'm leaving, right? You've rejected me. This story of foot washing is an interesting one, right? We could go into John's gospel, but we don't have time for that today. But in the ancient world, 
foot washing was a form of hospitality, although Jesus seems to, to, to kind of take up that cultural practice and infuse into it a, a spiritual lesson. Um, so typical of Jesus. I, I'll just share this quick story. When I was in seminary, periodically they would have these all-night prayer meetings. So they would have them on Friday night, we'd show up at midnight, and that's when it would start. And we'd kind of pray through the night. And in the morning, we would depart often and go get some breakfast. And then, you know, Saturday, probably take a nap sometime. So there was one Friday night, they're having an all-night prayer meeting, and I think, I'll go. That sounds like a thing I should do. <laughs> and so I, I get to the chapel, and it's a small crowd, much smaller than what we have here today. But a large chapel, um, at least as large as this room. But, you know, it's an all-night prayer meeting. You don't actually expect a big crowd. <laughs> and so at midnight, we start to pray. And we've been praying for hours, and we're kind of by ourselves. We've kind of, like, self-sequestered into different locations in the room. And one of the people who were at the all-night prayer meeting was one of the seminary professors. And about 3 a.m., he calls us down to the front. He collects us all. And he wants to know, what have we heard from God? And, I mean, I was already in seminary, but that still kind of struck me as an interesting idea. What do you mean, what have I heard from God? I've been talking to God, <laughs> or talking at God. Like, the idea that prayer was something that you would hear from God, I mean, I'd heard of it before, but I'd never been kind of so pointedly said, hey, you've been praying for a while, what have you heard? So, he said, what have you heard from God? And there's probably, I don't know, 15 of us at the most, and this one lady speaks up and says that she felt led to read Psalm 24. So he said, why don't you read it for us? So she opened her Bible and she read Psalm 24. It was actually the Psalm for last Sunday. And she got to that point where it said, who can ascend the hill of God except the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? And the professor jumps up and darts out of the room, like sprints out of the room. I'm like, that guy's weird. And he comes back in a minute, and he's got a bowl and a, um, a pitcher. And he, he comes down the front, and he proceeds to wash this lady's feet. Not the same lady who had read the psalm, but somebody else. And he's washing her feet, right? And he's on kind of all fours, and he's washing her feet, and he's got a towel, and he's dried them off. And he's kind of sitting, sitting on his knees, and he holds up his hands, and he says, he's, he kind of laughs. And this is like, I don't know, 3.30 at this point. And I'm like, incredulous as I was, I'm like, what are you laughing at? <laughs> and he's like, look. Look how clean my hands look. And sure enough, if they didn't look like the cleanest hands I'd ever seen in all my life. And he, he said, and I can testify, not only are my hands clean, but my heart is pure. As I washed her feet, it not only cleaned my hands, my hands were rubbing in the water, but it has purified my heart. You see, that night is the night that I felt like I really learned that it's as we serve God that our lives get put in order. I'd always been waiting to get my life in order so that I could serve God. But if you're waiting to get your life in order so you can serve God, 
you'll never get your life in order. There will always be something else you can do, always be something else you can work on, always else something you can know, some other experience you've had, some other book you've read, some other conference you've attended. You can't get your life in order enough to make you right to serve God. But if you do serve God in the very process of serving God and serving others, it will make you right. It will clean your hands and it will purify your heart. This is how this gospel story ends. The sending out of the 12, the apostling of the disciples, ends with this verse. These two verses, uh, Zach read them for us earlier. It says, So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. You see, I believe that anointing the sick is an act of caring. Because at the end of the day, I can't heal anybody. I can't deliver them. I can't save them. But I can care for them. And I can pray for them. And I can anoint them with oil. And that is a form of curing in and of itself. We'll trust in God ultimately to save and to deliver and to heal. But we can show our love through our prayers and through our anointing. We pray for God to heal. We want those to know that we anoint and pray for, that we care for them. When caring becomes a cure, we know that we're practicing the faith. And that will put us right. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.